You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Turn with us, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, if you will. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, we're going through the book of Galatians for those uh, that are guests today. Last week we saw Paul uh, accountable from every single angle. He had private accountability in his relationships. He had accountability with the Holy Spirit who prompted him to prompt some biblical conversations. And he had accountability in his resolve to not give in to false doctrine. He also had public accountability. He gave two examples of this in not circumcising Titus, who was a Greek. He didn't have to be circumcised to be a believer. And in publicly rebuking Peter's hypocrisy, acting one way in front of one group and a different way in front of another group, right? And that private and public transparency and accountability led to personal affirmation, not that he needed it. Because Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he modeled that submission. The Judaizers were secretive and crafty, but Paul was an open book and he sought accountability and clarity in his own doctrine and in his own integrity. So today in the remaining verses of Galatians chapter two, now that Paul has demonstrated this incredible unity with the other apostles, by the way, it was a unity so deep they could rebuke one another in love and still be co-laborers in the gospel. Unless you think that Peter and Paul, after this rebuke we read last week, lest you think they got sideways and were never friends again, that is not true. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.15, which by the way, he wrote after the rebuke. He wrote, it, he wrote this letter like 15 years after the book of Galatians was written. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter loved Paul and considered his writings as scripture. So now that Paul has presented uh, the apostles as this tethered team who stand together in the doctrine of grace through faith, now he's going to lean back into the practical implications of that, right? So let's read uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. This is a short passage. Why don't we stand in honor of God's word? Galatians 2, we're going to read verses 15 through 21. And these are the words of God, more important than anything else you're going to hear today. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
I want to ask Saul Choate to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. And while he comes, I want to say thank you to those who gave to the Christmas in July offering. We collected over $9,600 that will be divided between our church plant, uh, Ben and Rachel Hiley, who are out of this church. They weren't served here. And Ellen Hummerkhaus, who leads the orphanage down in Haiti, and then the Bulahanases over in South Asia. And so I'm thankful that we were able to, to give such a significant offering to them. Thank you. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your amazing love, Lord. Lord, we are so, so thankful that we get to worship in a Bible-based church with you. Lord, we just pray for all the teachers and all the children, Lord, that they just have a wonderful first uh, week coming up, Lord. Yeah. And we just pray for today's message, Lord. We pray that it speaks to our hearts and we learn from it. God, you're so good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now can be seated. All right, this, this passage is one of the key passages in all of Galatians. It's actually full of just epic truth, a game-changing truth, reformation truth. But being in possession of truth is only as good as one's ability to deliver that truth. Proverbs 25, verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's a masterpiece. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear, right? It's beautiful. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his master. Verse 15 says, and a soft tongue will break a bone. So to say right things the right way is actually skilled, it's beautiful, it's refreshing, and it's powerful. And Paul may usually be perceived as a blunt force object, you know, shortened to the point, but he was actually incredibly skilled in his delivery methods, which leads to our first point today, the indirect method. Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? There's two indirect deliveries here, right? What we're going to call collateral truth and associative truth, all right? First, I want to look at collateral truth. By collateral truth, I mean speaking to someone, but another person hearing and benefiting uh, from your conversation, right? right? Truth has a ripple effect, right? On more than its first hearer, right? We've all heard of collateral damage, but there's actual collateral advantage. My mother listened to a radio station called AM640 every morning on my way to school. I got up, there was a sermon on, three sermons. I'd hear Adrian Rogers, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur. I mean, I just nonstop. Not because my mom wanted me to hear it, but because my mom was thirsty for the word of God and she wanted to hear it. But there was a little collateral advantage on my part, all right? see. Some scholars suggest Paul was still addressing Peter in this passage, right? While others say Paul was addressing the Galatians, but actually it's both, all right? Remember Galatians 2, 11 through 14 was um, Paul rebuking Peter and other apostles for their hypocrisy. So he's talking about that. 
Then we have a chapter break in verse 15. Uh, and, and then it says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So Paul seems to be describing the conversation with Peter in the past in his letter to the Galatians in the present. Galatians 2.15 even says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The Galatians were all Gentiles. So he's not talking in that conversation to the Gentiles, but he's sharing a past conversation in the present. Does that make sense? It's actually brilliant. He used a past conversation with Peter to have a present indirect conversation with the Galatians, which is a brilliant delivery method for hard truth. Wise, non-confrontational, collateral truth. For example, when you go to the Ark Encounter, I went, we went with some friends to the Ark Encounter last year at Williamstown, Kentucky. And they have a seating area where there's like mini, a mini movie that's being played. And it's shown every hour or so. And in that movie, toward the end of the movie, there's a, someone in the mini movie <laughs> sharing the gospel clearly with someone else within the movie. It's not like a direct sharing of the gospel to those that are attending the ark. Does that make sense? It's, you're just watching it happen between two people on this screen, which is, and, and as I watched that, I thought it was actually pretty brilliant because most people reject truth delivered directly, right? But if they could be a fly on the wall or a bystander, they would hear the gospel in a collateral way and they'd be more open to receive the truth, especially if they have a rebellious heart. We're American. We don't like people telling us what to do. That's right. And so it's, it's, a, it's a gentle, indirect way to share Christ. And that's what I believe Paul was doing here. Indirect delivery is very wise. And by the way, it shouldn't be taken as some passive, aggressive deceitfulness. This isn't a wife staring out the window at the tall grass, saying to herself while her husband's in the room, look at that tall, tall grass. It looks like a forest out there. Maybe I should get a second job and hire a lawn boy. To which the husband replies, you know, I was just thinking how much dust collects on our furniture every six months. Maybe I should uh, get a second job and hire a house helper. Y'all can laugh at that. I mean, that's kind of funny. Y'all like, that's too close to home, Pastor. I mean, we just had this conversation yesterday. Matter of fact, we were fighting on the way to church this morning about that very issue. I know I should have cut the grass Thursday, but she's harping at me. I'm, I'm sorry. It gets a little too real sometimes for you, but I, that's not what Paul was doing. Okay, Paul wasn't being passive aggressive. I believe he was motivated with his subtlety and his gentleness were motivated in hopes that the message could be received more easily. And I think we Christians, we need to be mindful that when we think people are rejecting us and rejecting the truth, they may actually be rejecting the method and the motive of our own delivery systems, All right? But regardless of the people Paul was addressing, he was definitely sharing the truth of the gospel with the Galatians. That was happening. They were the first recipients of the letter. So boldness to speak doesn't negate gentleness and wisdom in the method in which we speak. The second indirect delivery was via associative truth. Associative truth. Now remember, Paul is recounting a conversation he had in the past with Peter in this present conversation, this letter to the Galatians. Galatians 2.15, Paul uses in this passage 
plural, first person, personal pronouns. We, our, all right? Those are personal pronouns. Paul is associating with the people he is speaking to, right? Peter and the other apostles. He is placing himself into his own story with them, right? It's not like I'm better than you. I'm one of you. I'm sinful like you. I struggle like you. And whether it was intentional or not, it's another wise way to help soften the blow of hard truth. Galatians 2.15 says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, uh, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. One commentator said, as Paul uses the term Gentile sinners... He might be doing so to enhance, by contrast, the pride of those who could say they were Jews by nature. Let me explain. The Galatian Gentiles may be thinking pridefully like, hey, we may not be Jews by blood, but we keep all your laws because we're bound to the law. And so we're just, we're Jews by nature, right? Just like you. I mean, because we're, we're doing all the, you know, we're doing all the right stuff. And Paul may be saying, no, 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 you're not, right? We're the first recipients. The Jews are the first recipients to the gospel. You need to stow your role, humble yourself a little bit. Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's what some scholars say. But I would add to that that Paul's originally speaking to Peter. So I think he, he was using it to point out Jewish pride as well, of which he himself would have also been guilty by association. Paul was humble and wise. His motives were not deceptive. He put himself in the story. His motives were to help reveal blatant hypocrisy to Peter and the others so they could repent. He wanted to help clarify the future of the gospel so they could help keep on building the kingdom of God. And he wanted to help the Galatians come back to the truth. And though the letter itself, the letter of Galatians, was a direct form of communication, the contents of the letter, it also included collateral truth and associative truth. And I believe they were both done to help the truth be more fully and easily received. Indirect method. Be wise to pay attention to Paul's methods. All right? But his method is one thing, but the message he was delivering to another, that's what we're calling the incredible message. He had an indirect method, but an incredible message. There's no greater issue. If you don't hear anything else I say today, there is no greater issue on the planet than to know how to be accepted by God. That is the number one question. Well, there's other issues, Pastor. What about the poor and starving people? Well, those are important too. Their needs are important. We as a church and as a convention of churches try to meet some of those needs. But it's amazing to me that we say things like, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. Good statement. It's a true statement. I got another one for you. Give a man a moral compass, feed him for a moment. Teach a man how to be accepted by God, feed him for a lifetime. If I teach how to do good without teaching who defines and enables good, 
and how will you know what's good and what will you do when you find out what's good and fail to do it? Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Now to understand this, we need to understand two things. The doctrine and the defense of this incredible word, justification. So the doctrine of justification is what I'll tackle first. For all those working in here, to be accepted by God with your own goodness, it is not going to end well for you, brother, sister. It is not going to go well. Matter of fact, I guarantee you're already feeling the miserable struggle of it because you hadn't lived one perfect day in your life. <laughs> Many people struggle, strive to be accepted by God. Church, if you have a scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours mentality, you're experiencing spiritual insanity. It's actually prideful to assume that you can do anything good enough to please a holy God. But it's incredibly inspiring when we realize we can't. It's an incredible message and it's an incredible doctrine. The word justified is used five times in seven verses here, four times as a verb, and then one time we'll mention in a, in later in the message uh, as, a, as a noun. But what does it mean, right? We've got all these Christian words. Sometimes we think they all mean the same thing. Salvation, propitiation, justification. Don't they all mean the same thing? Well, they all may lead to the same thing, but they have a wonderfully unique meaning, right? Uh, John Stott explains justification is a legal term borrowed from the law courts. It's the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare someone guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty, meaning innocent, righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself. Let me just pause there for a second. If you go to heaven, it's right. Do you understand that? It is right for your sinful, wretched, forgiven self to go to heaven. It's the right thing for God to do. It's not like he's like, like raising up the rug and sweeping you into heaven when no one's looking. You know, I'll let him in the back door of the club. That is not what's taking place. You're coming through the front door, buddy. Because it's right for you to be there. Because God made it right. That's why we sing so loud. Because <laughs> we get that. Hmm. He puts us in a right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. Stott says, is Paul not writing about a universal human need as pressing today as it was 2,000 years ago? There are at least two basic things which we know for certain. The first is that God is righteous. The second is that we are not. And if we put those two truths together, they explain our human predicament of which our conscience and experience have already told us, namely that something is wrong between us and God. Instead of harmony, there is friction. We are under the judgment, the just sentence of God. We are alienated from his fellowship and banished from his presence. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? 
2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? That's what you are if you're God's child. You are declared righteous. There's not one single sin that's going to get into heaven. Now, Satan did sin in heaven and God cast him out for it, but he's not letting another one in. You've got to be righteous when you step through those doors, and there's only one way to do that. And Paul wasn't the first to ask this question. It was asked thousands of years ago, even thousands of years before Galatians was even written. In one of the oldest books in the Bible, not chronologically, but written-wise, it was one of the oldest books written. It's the book of Job. If you're not familiar with that, the devil gets permission from God to persecute Job. And what ensues is an earthly dialogue about a heavenly matter that the reader sees we see both sides we see the heavenly conversation and we see the earthly events but the people in the story aren't seeing that all right and so throughout the book of job we have this question pop up i'm going to show you this job's friend eliphaz asks in job 4 17 there's a good uh, biblical name for your next son uh eliphaz uh job 4 17 can mortal man be in the right before god can a man be made pure before his maker? Job even asked the question over in Job 9 verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? It's a rhetorical question. Eliphaz asked again in Job 15, 14. What is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Fast forward, Job's friend Bildad repeats the question in Job 25, verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Those men knew enough about original sin. If you don't know what original sin is, put two babies who have never seen a sin before in their entire lives in a room together and put a toy between them, and you'll, you'll, you'll witness greed. They didn't, they didn't learn greed. They just had it built into them. That's original sin. At Adam's fall, we send all. And we need salvation. And those, those men understood that. And they asked the rhetorical question, if God accepts us by works, I mean, if that's the crazy case, then who in the world's going to get accepted? Because we're all sinful. Some have said justification means just if I never sinned. Not too bad of a definition, except that we have sinned. And God, through the sacrifice of His only Son, Jesus Christ, has made it like we haven't. 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I'm not, I'm not a lawless person. A perfect God and an imperfect us do not go together without a change. Romans 3, 22 talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. To be received by uh, how many times you come to church this month, how much you give in the offering plate, how many times you cuss this week, how many beers you have on your next date. Oh, that's what it's about. How provocative was your dance at that last wedding reception? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's in there. 
by faith. This was to show, is what the Bible says, Romans 3.25, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. What a rich, life-changing, priceless, incredible message. Let me tell you something. It was under attack. And it still is today. In many occult and false religion, even in the preaching of some good evangelical churches and in the practice of the, of the so-called Christians. So Paul needed to defend this message, to defend the doctrine of justification. And so he does. And here's the defense of that justification. And by the way, one pastor, just so you kind of understand what his defense, why he's defending it, one pastor, what he's defending one pastor said, Paul's critics argued like this. Your doctrine, your little doctrine of justification, Paul, that through faith in Christ only, apart from works of the law, is a highly dangerous doctrine. It fatally weakens a man's sense of moral responsibility. If he can be accepted through trusting in Christ without any necessity to do good works, you're actually encouraging him to break the law, which is a vile heresy known as antinomianism. People still argue this, like this today. If God justifies bad people, then what's the point of being good? Can't we do as we like and live as we please? And Paul's first response to his critics is to deny their suggestion with hot indignation. He says, God forbid, certainly not. Verse 17, he specially denies the added allegation that he was guilty of making Christ the agent or author of man's sin. As if God experimented. You know, we've been trying this whole law thing and that's not working out. So let's try this law of justification through faith. But then people didn't stop sinning. So well, I guess we ought to go back to accepting them through the law again. But man never did keep the law perfectly. And there was no perfect sacrifice until Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Meaning if God justifies me, but I continue to sin, it's myself who am guilty. Not Christ who justified me to be free from sin and bondage. I alone am guilty. Christ cannot be blamed. Church, listen. Christians have always seemed to overcompensate because of fear. Hunter, where you at? Oh, you're on the front row over here. That's nice. Hey, people make excuses you know, they don't want to be too expressive in worship. I mean, God forbid, we'll become one of them holy roller church. People be running up and down the pews, passing out on the stage like a Benny Hinn convention. Lord have mercy. Can't have that. So what, what do we do? We give up our freedom in fear of what we assume is the place where our freedom will take us. Let me tell you something, friend. Just because someone else abuses a freedom doesn't dispose of the freedom. Now you have to be wise in how you use your freedom, but it doesn't dispose, it's still there. <laughs> proceeding with faith is different than proceeding with fear. If the Galatians and their false teachers think that justification through faith, meaning innocence before God through faith in Jesus, if you think that incredible message encourages us to continue in sin, you fully misunderstand justification. It's not a broken earthly legal system where our status changes, but our character doesn't. That's our legal system, y'all. 
For those of you trusting in our legal system to change our nation, good luck with that. You can change the status of a man and put him in prison. It's not going to change the heart of the man. I'm not saying don't put people in prison. But what we're talking about is a perfect, heavenly, willing sacrifice where our soul is now unified with Christ, in Christ. Galatians 2.16, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ so that I might live to God. Verse 19, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Blasphemy. Blasphemy when you think your works earn you better spot before God. You make God's sacrifice of His Son on the cross of no purpose. And hey, by the way, that word righteous, that is the fifth use of the word justification. It's the same root word for justified. They just translated it righteous. Because righteous is as if means as if you've never sinned. Friend, when we are united to Christ by faith, we are no longer the same person. It's not just our standing that changes, it's our soul that changes. Like our verse in the entryway out there, 2 Corinthians 5 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Let me end with this. Remember uh, Proverbs uh, 25 about right words in the right way? Well, verse 14 of Proverbs 25 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. The Judaizers and many false religions still today boast of a gift that good works can give. But they can't. And so they're like clouds that promise hope. Let me tell you, friend, they will never, ever squeeze one raindrop (laughs) on the soil of your soul and your eternal destiny. You'll get no value squeezed out in regarding your salvation. But 1 Timothy 1.14 says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We're about to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. And that's a time of remembering the overflow. My cup runneth over. Friend, it's monsoon season every day. It's a tidal wave of grace. You ever see a cloud? Uh, Friday, Vicki and I were driving somewhere and I saw a cloud in the distance and you could see it breaking. You know when a cloud breaks and you can see the rainfall? You know it's raining. You can see it. Researchers say a large cumulus cloud that you might find on a nice summer day holds about a million pounds of water drops. A thunderstorm cloud contains enough water drops to fill approximately 275 million gallons. That's 2.3 billion pounds, 1.1 million tons of water. One thunderstorm cloud. So Paul says in Galatians 2.21, they offer a gift that their listeners will never receive one drop of. God offers a thunderstorm of a gift. (laughs) And his listeners can be flooded with it every day. All day, every day. And so Paul refuses to nullify grace by submitting to works. Church, if you feel sinful, newsflash, you are. Right? And if you feel 
like you have no value, you're believing the lie of the devil because you are worth what someone is willing to pay. You can put your house on the market and put it up for whatever you want to sell it for, but it's only going to get you. You're only going to get what the market gives, right? Well, you're going to get what you're worth, what someone gives for you. And Jesus has given it. He gave himself. God gave all of his only son for you. Jesus paid it all and to all to him. I did once owe, but sin left a crimson stain, but it ain't there anymore because he washed it white as snow. The method and the message matter. Now, before our time of response today, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper and I'm going to read a pretty self-explanatory passage to you from 1 Corinthians 11. And after I read, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, you will be dismissed to go to one of these four or five tables throughout our uh, worship center. Those are Lord's Supper tables. In them, there are two cups stacked on top of each other in every spot. All right. You're going to pick up both of those cups because the bottom one has the bread, the top one has the wine. And then you're going to return to your seat and take the Lord's Supper as you, cho- as you wish right there at your, at your seat. All right. So let me read this passage and then I'll have a stand and pray. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. What a great, what a great passage to, to end with on the study of justification. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Isn't it interesting they, they included that? On the night he was betrayed. Friend, if you think you're past God's forgiveness, listen. On the very night he was betrayed, <laughs> he took bread. The night he was about to pour out his life, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Listen, church, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is a proclamation, not a recreation of the gospel. We're not recreating a moment where Jesus dies again. God forbid, that's been done. The ordinance is a proclamation. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why it says, verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So if you're a believer, it doesn't matter whether you're a member of this church or not. If you are a believer and you've, uh, you can spend the next few moments maybe confessing any known sin to the Lord so that you can take that Lord's Supper in the right way. And if you aren't a believer, now's the time to call on the name of the Lord. Would you stand? Father God, we pray remembering your great sacrifice for us your body your blood forgive us when we mock it by thinking in our minds that our good works earn our favor 
Lord, we, we know that good works are good. <laughs> we'll have plenty of messages to talk about doing good works. But God, until we realize that those good works don't get us closer in our standing with heaven and holiness, then we'll be more empowered to do the good works. <laughs> and I pray that if there's people in here today that don't know you, maybe they're feeling guilty right now, like, uh, I'd like to be able to take the Lord's Supper, but I, I haven't called on the name of the Lord. Well, friend, you, you can take it. You can't call on the name of the Lord right now. You cry out to God and say, God, I, I, I repent of my sin. And I trust in your death, burial, and resurrection to save me. I trust in you only as my way to heaven. If you call on the name of the Lord and cry out to him, he will hear you and he will save you. You need to come after Lord's Supper. You need to come forward and make that public during our time of response. For others that maybe they have just been sitting around and they're not serving faithfully weekly in this church. They're just kind of pupitatus. So, Lord, we ask that you would help them. Maybe they do good things other places, but, Lord, it's your will that we serve you through our local church. That's what you say in Ephesians 4. And so we ask that if there's people here today that want to make this church, Piperton Baptist, their church home, that they'd come and be part, sign up to serve today. Lord, bless the time of the Lord's Supper. We ask that you bless the bread, bless the wine. We remember your body that was broken for us. We remember your blood that was poured out for us. And we trust in that sacrifice only for our value. We are accepted because you made it happen. We praise you for the faith you've given us to believe in it. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.